Holy Communion, a long-standing conversation about faith, life, justice, arts, culture. Each week, we will premiere a conversation on our channels. And then on the following Sunday, we join in the conversation with Q and A and a chance to engage on the topic. We're so glad you have joined us. Welcome to the forum. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests at Holy Communion, and today I am really glad to be joined by our rabbi in residence. First time we've done something together since we've had you have that title, uh, Maharat Rory Picker Niece. Uh, and I'm really excited. Rory's going to preach for the first time in our pulpit in as our rabbi in residence here in a couple weeks on the 3rd of April. But in the meantime, um, some legislation has come up and one of the things that Rory and I and the church were collaborating on that made us want to formalize this relationship was justice work and was lobbying work in Jefferson City. And Rory has been really one of the keystones of the religious community heading to Jefferson City this season and talking particularly around um, some questions on legislation affecting the trans community and trans kids. Last week, we re-aired our Trans 101 training at the forum. And this week, I thought we'd spend a little time talking with Rory. So, Rory, could you take a minute and introduce yourself, and then we'll dive into the question of the legislation? Sure. Um, so it's really good to be with you, and I appreciate the chance to talk about all of this. So as you said, um, I'm Rory. I work in the rest of my day job as the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council here in St. Louis, um, which essentially means that I work to build relationships between the Jewish community and other faith, ethnic, civic, and political groups. And we work together on issues that we see as important to the Jewish community, but we also see as deeply affecting the region at large. Um, and so many of these social justice issues are issues that are having a huge impact on who we are as a region and as a state. Very cool. And you came, some of us uh, knew a little about you before you started at JCRC. Talk about what brought you to the St. Louis region originally. Sure. So I first moved to St. Louis in 2013 to um, take a position at the pulpit at Bay Save, not too far um, down Delmar from Holy Communion. And so I was working as essentially like the assistant rabbi there for a little over two years. Um, I graduated from a program called Yeshivat Maharat, which is one of the first institutions training Orthodox women for clergy level positions in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, which is um, still the only denomination within Judaism that debates the ordination of women. And uh, St. Louis was one of the places that said, we're ready for a graduate. So um, I moved to St. Louis really for the pulpit work. Um, and through that became really connected more deeply with the interfaith work and the social justice work, just feeling like, what is it to be a person of faith if not to speak about the largest issues that we see in our world today? Yeah, that was one of the things I was really excited about. Holy Communion was one of the early churches when the Episcopal Church was having that debate about women's ordination that became an advocate for and supporter of women's ordination. And so it's fun for us to get to uh, give you the title rabbi uh, for, you know, when you're at our church, uh, because it, it allows us to keep our um, eyes on that. But wider questions of gender. Can you talk about kind of what's been up, um, what the legislature or what members of the legislature are proposing and 
uh, the groups you've been bringing, the folks you've been bringing to testify? Yeah, so there's really um, two major areas of bills. Um, there's multiple bills this session, um, but these bills, I've been fighting them really for about um, three years now. There's been coalitions in these versions. So obviously anti-trans bills are something that have been coming up for many years. I think a lot of us remember some of the earlier debate that happened around the bathroom bills. Um, and, you know, that was something that really raised a whole lot of attention nationally. Um, and I think is also a really important example of ways in which social pressure really pushed back heavily and killed those bills in many other states when um, organizations, uh, corporations pulled conferences and major dollars from states that were talking about passing those bills or particularly after North Carolina passed those bills. I mean, so I say that because that's going to lead to the what can we do about this? So I want yeah. to already plant some of those seeds now. Um, but what, what's really the first um, line of bills is what we're calling what are essentially um, athlete bans. Um, and, and these are really in some ways bathroom bills 2.0, right? It's trying mm -hmm. to just kind of get into what people feel is this like discomfort of something feeling wrong when in fact there really isn't anything that's wrong. So the athlete bans in the version that's in the um, legislature this year particularly says that um, the only people who can play on women's only sports are people who were assigned female at birth. So it essentially bans trans women from participating in sports. And the language that the supporters of these bills are using is that it's about saving women's sports, that this is about fairness, that um, women have, have been given these opportunities to play in sports a lot of talk about kind of the history when sports was really mostly centered around men. And so all of the efforts to really create and foster women's sports and that now women's sports is under attack by these, what they're really claiming are, are actually men, right? You know, they'll keep using this term biological males, right? People who um, were, were identified as male at birth, um, you know, as if these are people who think that they will do better in women's sports than in men's sports and therefore are claiming to be women just to then try to hijack these sports or to get positions that otherwise would have been filled by women. And I read somewhere that there's a, like, we're not exactly sure depending on what passes, like, which sports this would affect or at what age group it would affect sports? So this is going as young as kindergarten. I mean, this is going into schools. Um, so it, it will have, so it's a little confusing in terms of like, where does the legislature have power? Um, so the interesting thing in many ways is that this conversation has been going on in the world for some time. I mean, there are trans athletes. The Olympics already has policies in terms of how to determine um, when trans athletes are able to play on the team according to their gender identity, um, what kind of hormone treatments that they have gotten or, or sort of where they are in the transition process. I, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat ambiguously because I don't actually know the yeah. official policy, but the Olympics has policy on this. Um, many college sports, I think most college sports already have policy on this and that's really established policy. And the Missouri State High School Athletics Association has a policy for high school students. There are high school students who have been playing in these sports. Um, this might um, violate, like this would probably override Missouri's 
um, high school association sports policy, which feels really ridiculous in that the legislature is not an expert on this. And here you have an athletics association that has spent years developing a policy. So they already have figured all of that out. Um, and then where it really starts to impact is elementary and middle schools, where these schools are probably navigating this on a case-by-case -case basis and figuring out what's going on. And, um, and then suddenly you have these new, this legislature that's trying to override local authority to decide what's best for their own students. Yeah, so government overreach. Very much so. And, and the people who have been opposing the bill, I mean, the opponents of the bill, it goes from every level. But um, I mean, the business chambers for both Kansas City and St. Louis have been testifying, basically saying to just leave it in local control, let individual schools figure out what's best for their own schools, um, rather than a, a statewide policy that really tries to tell, I mean, to tell schools what's best for them. Yeah. And you've been there for a number of the hearings where there's been testimony, and I've heard tell that there have been some really wonderful moments of just brave kids testifying and some really hard to be in the midst of moments. You mind sharing any of that? Yeah, I'm happy to. So let me also just say, I, I do want to get back because there is a second category of bills. Okay, okay yeah, yeah. None of those bills have had hearings yet. So these are the bills that are moving. So let's take time to talk about this. But I do want to make sure that we talk about um, the, the health care bills also, because those are really, really scary. Um, so these the, the athlete bills, um, and I'm using plural because they've been sort of like combined because they're similar, but there's actually three bills in the House um, and one bill in the Senate. So both the Senate and the House have had hearings on these bills. Um, and it's been amazing to see... Um, I mean, really the kids who are showing up, we've had um, kids who themselves identify as trans testifying, and we've had kids who are cisgendered, who are allies, who are supportive of the trans community testifying. Um, and um, these kids are just, I mean, the amount of bravery that's necessary for these kids to go into this room where you have, I mean, for those who've been in Jeff City, I'm thinking about, I mean, in the House, you have these much larger committees and, you know, here are all of these, frankly, any adults, right? But here are these adults and they're kind of sitting in these, you know, really important chairs and, in, in, you know, this, this like, um, you know, sort of parliamentary kind of room, right? I mean, but the Senate is even more austere. So the Senate is a smaller committee, but they are like elevated, right? Like you are looking up at them. I mean, these rooms are designed to evoke certain feelings and certain um cultures of, of what they think, you know, the authority that exists. And, you know, you're sitting in these really austere rooms with these adults who have a huge amount of power. I mean, forget just the, the power that they have over these individuals, but the power that they have in general. And, and they're just trying to get these adults to understand who they are. Um, and, and it, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's heartbreaking because a lot of these kids, you know, you get three minutes to try to tell people why this is a terrible bill, which means that you're really reduced to oftentimes kind of pithy statements. It's often like tweets, right? And so that's also why these become so dangerous. Like the people who are testifying, they're saying, oh, we just want to save women's sports. You know, we're proud to be, um, we're proud to support, you know, we're women's activists, we're feminists, you know, which I think, it, right, we're starting off talking about like, what does it mean for both of us to be part of institutions that are 
trying to advance rights for women. You know, and here you have these women who are saying, right, here's we just want to protect women. Um, this is this is this is our whole mission, right? Which sounds great in a good like two minute quick quip, right? And then you're trying to explain to these people. Like, first of all, no one's attacking women's sports, right? You're saying absolutely women should play women's sports. And these people are also women. And not only are these people women, but the ways in which sports um, has been opportunities for people to find themselves, to learn teamwork, to gain confidence. I mean, whether or not someone goes on to professional sports, right? What sports can just mean for kids or to just have fun with their friends and hang out. You know, what does it mean for a seven-year-old who already knows that they are a girl to be wearing skirts and have long hair and have to be on the boys' soccer team, you know, when when their friends, like, don't even understand because they're like, this is our friend who's a girl. I mean, like, these kids aren't the ones who are fighting this. It's coming from their parents. And so, it, it, like, seeing these kids having to sit there and not only try to explain who they are or why they are important people who are deserving of rights, but sometimes to then get cross-examined um, by these elected officials. Um, I've seen less so this year, though, I mean, we could talk about some horrible things that happened this year, but I mean, last year, some of these kids were getting up and talking about attempting suicide and self-harm or their friends who attempted suicide and self-harm and senators who were cross-examining on them on it, like who wanted more details about suicide attempts. You know, and these kids are, they're 13, they're 14. It's, um, we were in the Senate this year when a 14 year old was saying, you know, we just, we just wanna be us. And uh, one of the senators started to ask her which bathroom she uses. And she said she uses the girl's bathroom. And she said, you know, well, doesn't that make other people uncomfortable? Like they don't know that you have different genitals than they do. And, and like, she's asking this 14 year old about genitals. And, um, and this kid is like, we just go to use the bathroom. Like, we're not like exposed, like no one's exposed. Like, she's like, we just want to pee. Like really, she was just like, I don't understand even this question. And, um, and then like the Senator kept, kept going. She kept saying, well, are you going to, are you going to have surgery? Like she started to really probe and, um, and it was actually sort of amazing. The room sort of erupted, like everyone, mm -hmm. right. There's a lot of decorum in the Senate, but 30 people probably jumped out of their seats in that moment and said, stop this questioning right now. This is completely inappropriate. This is completely out of line. And what's amazing in that is that the senator didn't realize she was being inappropriate, right? Like that, that's what we keep coming back to. She actually apologized at the end of the hearing. She said she was really just curious. And that's the problem, right? She's curious and she therefore thinks it's okay to ask a 14-year-old on the public record in a public hearing that is being recorded about how she uses the bathroom. And and this and is what genitals. facing. Yeah. And and this is what these kids, right? And and you know, these kids are sitting there and, and, and this is what other kids are watching, right? They're seeing their friends or these other kids going up and trying to advocate, not knowing what's going to be asked of them. Yeah. And it's people who, who, right. Who genuinely are, don't, it's hard for me to even put into words, right? What is it for these people to be voting on these bills when they clearly don't even understand what's at stake? 
But I want to say they don't even need to, right? Like that that somehow when we start talking about trans rights, people suddenly think like in no universe is it ever okay to ask a 14-year-old really personal questions like that if you're a total stranger, let alone in public, let alone you're an authority figure, let alone, you know. And so, um, but yet like we suddenly think that it is okay, right? When somebody says that they're trans, people think it's totally fine to ask them incredibly inappropriate questions. And these kids are the front lines of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. Um, I mean, it's both amazing to think about the kids that have gone and testified and the bravery that they have mustered uh, to be in the midst of that. And I mean, just frankly, exhausting. And one of the things that Sayer Johnson said in his presentation in Trans 101, I mean, like one of the medically proven statistics that we have around the trans community is just how, um, you know, gender affirming care uh, and gender affirming treatment is suicide prevention. You know, that it has been shown statistically that um, the depression outcomes, the suicidal ideation outcomes, all of that improves remarkably with gender affirming care. And so I mean, like the, that's not a central part of how we think about it. like the, the scientific facts that we know around that um, are not the thing that the senators are curious about um, is really, really difficult. Talk about the I mean, get, that gets us into the healthcare thing. Can you talk about the other potential legislation? Yeah. So this other legislation, um, the, the health care bans gets exactly to what you just said. It basically says um, that it is, it is illegal to give children under the age of 18 um, gender affirming care. And that comes in the form of um, puberty blockers, which will delay puberty. Um, and then ultimately would also include um, hormones of the gender that the person is. And so um, it, it's terrifying. I mean, these bills have also come in a few different iterations. So the um, the healthcare ban this year, I think, does not include, but in previous years, it has not only made it illegal, but it has also tried to classify it as child abuse, which would make um, the doctors who give that treatment subject to losing their license. Not only would they be fined or potentially arrested, but losing their license. And parents who support giving the treatment to, this ch to their children, again, also subject to arrest, but also to losing their children um, and being subject to child protective services. Um, which is what Governor Abbott did in Texas or tried exactly. to do. And then the, it finally the court blocked him. Right. Well, so my understanding of what's happening in Texas is that the governor said that, but there's not actually a law mm -hmm. behind it. And so there's a whole bunch of different debate about ability to implement it. Um, Idaho is trying to pass a law that says the same thing and also to make it illegal to leave the state to give, get a child gender affirming care. So if somebody were to you know, if, if Idaho were to pass this bill and someone were to come to St. Louis, where we have a wonderful children's hospital that does do these services, then they could potentially still be subject to arrest in Idaho for doing that. Um, it, it is, there's multiple pieces in all of this. And again, I think, I think the, the narrative that's coming up is that like, there's sort of these parents who are forcing their kids to do these surgeries or to do these things against their will. When we start talking about kids, for the most part, kids who are transitioning, young kids who are transitioning, it, it's social transitioning, right? So, I mean, for anyone who has a child, they know that there's really, like, there's nothing about a baby other than, like, which onesie you put it in, right? Um, like, yeah. it, it, Do you put the pink bow in its hair? 
Exactly. You're yeah. talking about haircuts, you're talking about um, accessories, and you're talking about clothing. And so young kids who transition change their haircut and just change which side of the store they're buying their clothes on. And then that's basically it. You know, there's not actually like a different cut of their body or, you know, shape of their body or things like that. Um, when we start talking about things like self-harm, you're really talking about um, body dysphoria of where somebody feels like um, their body is not the right body, which often comes from like changes. So um, people who are male who then don't, who are, who are men who don't like having breasts, you know, things like that, where somebody then might try to actually cut themselves, like remove these parts, or you're talking about people who are or just, you know, feeling incredibly unhappy with themselves. And so other ways that they try to manifest that. Um, and so in many ways, as exactly as you said, the best thing to do is how do we really support people in getting the things that they need? And so for kids, the, the best thing to do is to delay puberty, right? So that somebody does not start to change, they don't start to grow facial hair if they're not a male, you know, all of those types of things. And to really get, it actually buys kids time. I find that to be sort of the irony of these bills is that people who say, you know, 10-year-olds can't be making these decisions, you're saying, right. And so 10-year-olds don't want to be starting on this process. Yeah. So if we think, you know, you can't do puberty blockers forever, but you can delay puberty till 15 or 16. And so I know that still doesn't quite get us to that 18 mark that some people want to really get to, but at least you're talking about a very different story for somebody to then um, be making this lifelong decision at 10, then making this lifelong decision at 15. And um, all of the steps, right? And, and you're also talking about preventing surgeries, right? If, if someone never develops breast tissue in the first place, then you're not talking about the same kind of surgery that they would later need. So um, besides the fact I should add that, that puberty blockers are also used for many other medical conditions. And so there's lots of people who are not trans who also have puberty blockers because they start puberty too early, because puberty is happening too fast, or for a variety of other, again, I'm not a medical professional, but a variety of other things that, that doctors might prescribe this for. So they've been used for many years. They're determined to be incredibly safe and they don't have long lasting effects. So a child who goes on puberty blockers at the age of 10, who then might still decide, right? Cause that's the other thing is people saying, well, what if they change their mind later? Um, which it's, it's a minuscule statistic, but has happened. Um, and so everyone wants to sort of, right. I think there's much higher statistics of trans kids attempting suicide than trans kids who later as an adult transition back. So which one are we really more concerned about? But even in that scenario, um, somebody goes on puberty blockers to delay puberty. And then if at 15, they say, you know what, actually, I realized that I really am whatever this this gender was. Um, if they go off puberty blockers, then their body just starts to to do puberty naturally and there's no long-term, long-lasting effects that have been recorded about that. Otherwise, they would they would start going on either estrogen or testosterone and then go through puberty of the gender that they ident that that they are. Yeah. It, there's a and we'll be clear, neither of us are medical professionals. And so a lot of what the bill language does and, and part of as, as religious leaders like what we're opposed to is handing these decisions to people who are not medical professionals right like, like you said we've got an amazing um clinic through the st louis children's hospital here in st louis that has folks who are experts in exactly this science and exactly this medicine and so what we don't want is politicians in jefferson city making decisions that keep doctors from being able to practice medicine in um, and take care of kids. 
that's really what Absolutely. it boils down to, right? Absolutely. And in Missouri right now, nobody can get this kind of treatment. No children can get this treatment unless they have the consent of their parents, of a medical professional, and of a mental health counselor. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about, I mean, nobody is sort of just waking up one morning and then saying, you know what, like, I'm kind of bored of how I look. And so I just want to go and get this surgery. I mean, you're talking about months, if not years, before somebody's able to actually get this kind of treatment. And so, um, and nobody is, is making those decisions lightly. There, there's complicated medical decisions. And I would never, I mean, the idea that the government would then be infringing on that, I think is just terrifying. I mean, I don't think any parent wants to elect for their child to have a procedure unless it's medically necessary. And I think about, you know, if, if somebody, and I, I'm not, I want to be careful because I want to, I want to talk about if somebody had some kind of unusual medical condition, I'm not saying that someone being trans is an unusual medical condition, yeah. you know, but in a situation where somebody might be facing where someone might suddenly have um, experimental treatments, you know, where, I would never want to have to be in that position to think about, you know, what if my child needs this? And with anything, it's you're always thinking, what's the alternative, right? So the alternative is, you know, when we talk about this with cancer treatments, right? Sometimes the treatment itself is so damaging to the person, but we need to do it because the disease is still so much worse than that. And so we're weighing all of these different options. And, and in this situation, I think people are thinking, well, it's fine because really the kid is fine and healthy and they're not understanding that, that they're not fine, right? And that's why when we talk about cases of self-harm or suicide attempts, it's because what we're trying to really emphasize is that it's not a situation where this person is fine. There is something that does need to be addressed and fixed and we need to have a community that's able to support that. We would never want in a situation where someone has to make this impossible decision with their doctor and their child about another medical condition to suddenly then find that the government said, oh, you know what, actually, you know, the doctors think this is a treatment that could help your child, but we've decided we just don't like it. You know, you think that that should be a decision that's happening amongst medical professionals and the people who have best interests at heart. The other thing I would just add to it, though, is that it's noteworthy that these bills are specifically attacking the trans community. So we can talk about all of this and, and people want to push this into a conversation about sports or about medicine, but we're not having this conversation about any other parts of sports or any other parts of medicine. And um, we had so many professional female athletes coming to testify in the Senate and on the House side. Um, there were, uh, you know, if I was into sports more, I might have known who their names were. And so I can't yeah. tell you off the top of my head, but they were very well. I mean, one of them was an Olympic gold medalist, you know, and, and they were testifying and they said, look, you want to save women's sports. We want to save women's sports. Let's give you a list. Here are the things. If you actually wanted to talk about making women's sports more equitable, then let's talk about fair pay. Let's talk about how we can combat abuse that women face in sports. Let's talk about how women have equal opportunities for endorsements and for the opportunities. Like there are lots of things that we could be doing to fight for equality of women in sports and and attacking trans women isn't one of the things that does that and and similarly i think also with medicine right we could have concerns if there's really issues in terms of how are we studying treatments how are we you know monitoring doctors to make sure that treatments are happening in ways that are not being overly prescribed or we're making sure that there's the right overview we could be talking about bills like that but we're not these bills are specifically saying that the trans community can't play sports and the trans community can't get the treatment that they need 
And so I think we need to talk about the fact that there is already an incredibly marginalized, vulnerable population mm -hmm. that most of the of the country just doesn't understand. I don't understand. I mean, I fight for these bills, but like I never felt like I was in the wrong body. So I don't understand what that is. Um, and yet, and so we have elected officials who have decided that it is easy to pick them as a scary other and a scary, um, like like a boogeyman kind of in this whole story, and then to make their platform that they're going to fight against this. And they're using this to get votes and to advance their own platforms. And this is a community that already is facing sometimes bullying. Many of them are not supported by their families. Um, they might not, may or may not be supported in their schools. And so the idea that the government is then saying, you know what, we've identified that this is a good group that we can kind of like take advantage of and use to kind of scare our constituents into getting behind us is really just one of the most deplorable pieces of this legislation for me and why I think it is so incredibly important that every one of us fights against this because we are saying that it is okay to attack a group of people just for political gain. Well, and I think too, I mean, part of the witness that you and Rabbi Daniel Bogard, who um, has been pretty public about talking about being the parent of a trans child uh, in the midst of this, but that faith voices are important in this because a lot of times religion is used as a reason why, you know, like um, what you and I would probably consider outdated um, understandings of religion and gender play a lot into the political rhetoric about why these bills are important, why these bills are uh, politically useful for some of the folks that are sponsoring them. And to have people of faith standing up and say, no, actually, I believe that God creates a beautiful spectrum of gender and that gender is a wild and diverse adventure of an experience and that kids can be our teachers. I mean, we're used to that narrative around watching amazing girls um, that do leadership in ways that generations ahead couldn't have imagined, right? We're used to that. But that um, the kids that are growing up now are teaching us so much about what acceptance can look like and what bravery can look like and what gender can look like. Um, and that there are religious leaders out there that embrace that and want to make room for, um, you know, scientists and doctors and the narrative of kids to tell us um, what the image of God that they have been created in looks like. Um, and so I think, it, I mean, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm super proud of the work that you've been doing in um, accompanying the trans community in fighting this legislation, because I think it matters that religious people. Um, so I, what, what is it? Let's go to that last thing that people can do. And then I'm going to make a plug that when people write or when people advocate, uh, they, when they can, they also say as a person of faith, uh, I think it matters that we make room for trans kids. So what is it? What are the best things that people of faith can do? So, I mean, it's everything that we've been talking about, right? I think like first and foremost, it is, it's using some of this language, right? It's, it's acknowledging because we're talking about a community that's largely been erased or that um, other people are trying to hijack the narrative. So I was really intentional about using some of the words earlier that, that opponents use, right? Actually really offensive language. But when people start to talk about things like biological males or biological females, like it's, it is, it's trying to erase who this person is. Um, people, some people will identify as 
trans men, some people will just identify as men, um, you know, really trying to recognize the narrative that people have, but talking about the trans experience or just talking about trans as a real thing, right? A lot of people, again, they sort of tell it as like a joke, as if it's like, oh, you know, the way that like, I mean, I'm being facetious, right? But like the ways in which like, sometimes you're at like a concert and like the line for the women's room is too long. So someone just decides to use the men's room because it's more empty, right? Like like as if gender was just something you put on because you were bored one day as and not recognizing like what it is that people are experiencing. Also, we haven't really even addressed within this the experience of people who are non-binary, who don't identify as male or female, which which these bills would also significantly impact. And, and you know, that scares people even more because we still like the binary. So we're confused that people can switch. But if you still become a man, at least I know where to put you. So so we have to just name that. So but naming that just just tells somebody that they're seen, right? So at least acknowledging it and being able to use these words or learning the right words. And if that means Rewatching the the training that you put out last week, you know, helping to un, helping people to really understand what all of this is, because people will hear that, people will know, they'll know if it's safe to talk about this or to explore or all of that. So that's one thing is the ways in which we can just normalize to say, this isn't a made up experience. Trans is a real thing, and so that's something we all can do in our everyday lives. That's just right in our real quick, but our. Our former senior warden, Shirley Mensa likes to talk about that work as the work of the language of love, um, learning the pronouns, learning the um, gender identities, learning the language that the community uses to name itself, rather than importing your own language on. That can be an act of love, just using the pronouns that someone chooses, just um, calling them by the identity they want to be called by is in itself an act of love. So. I love that. Yes. Um, so then the next thing is um, to fight the bills. Um, it's to call your elected officials and to make sure that they are aware that they know that these are not bills that you want them to support, that these are bills that you do not, that you want them to actively oppose. And I say the second part because it's actually, it's very easy to ask someone to not vote for a bill. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I don't mean that they'll always listen. But there's actually tactics that can happen in Jefferson City in terms of like deals that could be made. So we were able to kill some of the bills last year because people were able to kind of negotiate. Um, so you might say, OK, this person ideologically, they're in line with me. And there are there are people who ideologically would say, yeah, I think these bills are terrible. They may or may not go to the mat for them. And so sometimes that means, look. I want you to make that deal. I want you to give up something, not something that we think is earth shattering, right? But there are, there are sometimes these other deals that are happening that you might be, you know, they might feel kind of ambivalent about. You say, look, yeah, trade for those, I don't know, other taxes on, again, like this is, I'm getting yeah. out, you know, on corn, you know, but like make that- Actively work against the legislation. Right, and say like, because, because we don't want this bill to get out of committee um, or because we want, um, particularly in the Senate, um, the power in the Senate is likely going to be to filibuster these bills. Um, and so there's ways in which like we need people. So if you think, oh, I don't need to call my person because I think they're already with us, um, I would say you still call and you still say, um, I need you to be actively working against this. And if you're in any position where you are involved with a business or with anything that kind of brings business to St. Louis or to the Missouri, um, to really talk about what it is to have large corporations that say, we will not have our national conference here. Um, mm -hmm. We will, I mean, it's been huge. The end of the NCAA 
has said that they will not hold tournaments in states that pass trans athlete bans. Um, and that's been huge to really push and say, this is the amount of revenue that we risk losing in the state of Missouri if this actually happens. That's very much language that can that that reaches because some of these people, again, like they're not actually understanding what's going on. They're living in areas where they think that they have no trans constituents, probably because people don't think it's safe to come out or because they would leave if they are not because necessarily statistically there are none. Um, but, you know, this is not something that their people really like they're not going to their people would be like, why wouldn't you ban sports for, you know, these yeah. these, you know, like people that we don't understand. Um, and so like they need to, you need to give them this other language of here's the millions or billions of dollars in revenue um, that could really be impacted. Here's but I think also just going back, like going back to what you were saying, Mike, like just just like expressing that love and support. So much of the language against the trans community is coming from faith-based language, right? It's people who are saying, you know, it's people who want to say, um, God doesn't make mistakes or God made you this way or you're, whatever the language is that people want to use. And so people of faith saying, no, my faith tells me that God is bigger than this. God is capable of more than two choices and God has multitudes and, and that everyone is created in the image of God. And actually we get this better understanding of this vast, multifaceted, inconceivable God by understanding this wider spectrum of of humanity that we can be exposed to right like that that's the language you know that actually says to these kids like not only are you loved and are you beautiful but actually we need you in our lives we need you because you actually bring us closer to god yeah and and i think that that could be really transformational for for people who aren't hearing that from from people who are sitting there hearing from their own elected officials that maybe they aren't real people or they don't belong having people who say not only do you belong and do we see you but we need you that's that's going to change the whole world all right one last and i'm going to ask you to play rabbi for a second because i get nervous about doing hebrew around you because you know way better than i do but um can you talk about god and pronouns for a second and and gender yeah i mean so in I mean Hebrew is a very gendered language. Everything in Hebrew has a gender. So and when I say everything, I mean everything. So people have genders, but um, my chair has a gender, and my desk has a gender, and my computer has a gender. And so there is no gender neutral in Hebrew. There's some modern efforts to try to create it, but you know if I would if I say something about the chair and I say I'm going to go buy it, it's that I'm going to go buy her or him. I think. I think it's him. Um, anyway, like it. Um, so um, now I have to remember what the gender of everything. It's hard to remember the genders of everything, um, you know. And so, um, in in Torah, I mean, in the Bible, like it will gender God. Um, but first of all, you actually do see multiple ways in which God is referred to. More often, um, God is referred to using male gender. Um, pronouns. Um, but there are times where God is referred to using feminine words that then there's feminine pronouns. So the Shekhinah, God's God's presence is a feminine, um, which some people will take to kind of refer to like feminine and masculine sides of God, or you could just take to mean like masculine and feminine words, whether or not you want to actually, I think a lot of women want to kind of take it as the feminine. I'm actually not even sure that it's like a feminine so much as really just shows that all of these words are just kind of neutrals that we just don't have a neutral for. Um, so um, so there's a lot of different ways in which like God gets used with these multitude of um, 
of terms. I mean, I'm even thinking about like ways in which at times um, in our tradition, in the Jewish tradition, we'll refer to like the relationship between God and the people of Israel as um, like a bride and groom and like God is the bride and Israel is the groom, right? I mean, there really mm -hmm. isn't the sense of like, that it would be like, cause, cause it's not an inappropriate thing, right? Cause God is neither male nor female. And so therefore God is both male and female. And so the idea that we can use really any of those pronouns when referring to God in, uh, in Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. I love that. I think it's, it's one of the things that's broken open by this conversation is just how complex gender has always been. Right. And, and when you start breaking into the language and culture um, and languages and cultures really of the people who wrote the scriptures, because you've got over such a period of time, different constructions, you know, you just think about how marriage looks like across the history of the Bible and how much that shifts um, in different eras, but that you have this sense that there is a beautiful diversity in the way that we can name God and in the way that we can name the people. Um, and so things that try to shut down beautiful diversity uh, to me, don't seem very biblical. No, well, and, it, and it's limiting. I mean, that's what's amazing is that if we want God to only fit into this box, then already it's not God, right? Because like by definition, God can't fit into this box. So I, I like, I find it just comical when people get upset about which pronouns as if God could be defined by any one pronoun, hmm. um, right? Or as if God, because if if our idea of God is something that is I mean, for me, like God has to be bigger than what my mind can comprehend. I have a limited mind and God is unlimited. And so I use words because that's the only path that I have. And so we'll talk about the hand of God or we'll talk about God speaking, but we don't actually think God has a hand or a mouth because God is formless, but God is able to also access forms, right? It has to be beyond comprehension. And so when people want to then get really angry because they say, no, like God has to be male like that just means that you've just decided that god is limited and it's no longer god anymore yeah yeah and likewise then you get into anthropology uh, if we try to limit human beings too much uh, human beings have the capacity to surprise us if people are made in the image and likeness of god that is a wide diversity uh that manifests itself out so any last pieces we want to touch on? We're a little bit over time, so I just want to see if there's anything you wanted to cover that we didn't cover. No, I think I really appreciate the chance to talk about all of these things. Um, you know, there's a lot to be really paying attention to of, of what's happening in Jefferson City, but this is really one of the particular areas that, um, I mean, it's really, it, it's happening across states. I mean, we're talking about this in Jefferson City, but we've already referenced Texas, Idaho, I mean, Alabama, Mississippi, I mean, a lot of states are debating these bills. And so um, that's also something where we're, we're in Missouri and some of our power to, our power to vote is here and our power to speak out is here. But also we do have power in terms of being people out of states to say, um, so like what I said also in terms of where are we traveling to these states? Are we bringing our business to these states? How do we communicate to these states? Um, I started off by saying that in North Carolina, when they passed the bathroom bill, there was a swift response that came from the rest of the country that made no other state. The other states had been debating the bills and every other state killed the bills as soon as they saw what happened to North Carolina. Um, we, If we want to see this stopped, we need to see the similar things. I mean, the outrage that's being targeted towards Texas because of these debates, um, you know, 
what happens if some of these other bills get passed in other states. All of us have a power for that because if 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 everyone sees what happens to Texas, Missouri doesn't try it anymore. And so we in Missouri get to say our outrage for what's happening in Texas, and then we get to also stop it from happening in our own backyard. Yeah. Rory, I'm just so grateful. Um, for those who want, on Sunday morning, uh, this coming Sunday, the 20th of March, we'll be gathering at nine o'clock for some coffee and some bagels. Bagels? I don't say it right. I bagels. Bagels. Uh, but we'll be talking about these questions uh, between the two services at Holy Communion. Rory said that she can join us. That'll be fun. Uh, we're actually hoping for one of our Missouri representatives to be there too. But if not, then we'll report on it too. Uh, uh, Rep. Joe Adams and ask him to actively oppose these things. Uh, but uh, but yeah, come talk, bring your questions. Um, and we'll talk about some more legislation, the guns in houses of worship stuff that they're trying to propose again, things like that. We'll talk about that on Sunday as well. Let me finish by saying, Rory, thank you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thank you for all the orientations to Jefferson City you're running for people of faith right now. Um, thank you for that work. And we're just so excited to uh, work with you on it in these coming months. So. Thanks. Thanks for the chance to talk about it. And and I'm thrilled to bring anyone with me next time we're going. So. All right. Blessings. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye.